of thinking much more than it is a body of knowledge kal sagan welcome to a new episode of the researcher story an exploration into the science labs of india a conversation with some of our best minds where a scientist will finally get to be the hero of the show everything which is new has to come out of fundamental research otherwise it's not new said dr manfred eisen german biophysicist physical chemist who's also a 1967 nobel prize winner today we have with us someone who has dedicated his life to fundamental biology research please welcome dr krishnan harshan principal scientist at center for cellular and molecular biology to our show welcome dr krishnan hi thank you suraj thanks for having me here thank you it's 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 a pleasure to have you here on the show so dr krishnan uh, you have spent a large part of your career uh, including you know your phd work as well doing fundamental research on microbes uh which is which i find uh, to be very fascinating can you tell me uh, you know what's your motivation uh, in doing fundamental research okay yeah that's a that's quite an interesting question to come out of uh, you know somebody who's actually not from not doing hard hardcore science yeah so um, the word when you look at the word fundamental that actually means that uh, this is something core right that is the meaning yeah. of fundamental, core or yeah. central so uh, if you look at the way that people think uh the, how the thought process operates everything is pretty much around the questions why when and how right so right is this answers to these questions essentially form the core of any 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 question or any mechanism and these are the these are the fundamental things to any question in our mind so uh working on a fundamental uh problem in research is actually not nothing strange at all and uh, you know from the from the time immemorial people have been asking these questions uh, right. for everything that they see uh, around them right so that's not very different in the case of research as well so uh, for example if i uh, take you back to what we know in in case of uh, you know uh, the this uh, scientific discovery in terms of microbiology um uh, people had encountered uh, microorganisms uh, from the time that we started evolving right and because these microbes existed in the world in some form or the other of course new forms of microbes had been evolving all around us but then right from the beginning also we were encountered with all kinds of organisms and then microorganisms were there around us now but when um you know with 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 the invention of microscope and then that led to the subsequent discovery of microbes this actually opened up our imagination that there are organisms which are uh you know uh, smaller than what we can actually see with our naked eye right so naturally the next set of questions are what are these how are they different from us and why are they small uh what makes them small and how efficient are they uh and then the next question is going to be are they going to affect our lives right and yeah. this this were not very different from any question that we ask every day for example if a lady comes across a stranger or not just a lady any person who comes across a stranger on the, on the street the first question that you see a stranger on the road the first question that comes to your mind is going to be who is this right and then you start thinking okay how is this person going to affect me that thought naturally comes to me 
that thought naturally comes to anybody. So these questions are essentially the core, the fundamental questions of any anything that exists around us. Right. So, so, so when you identify, when you come across an organism which is much smaller than what you can actually see, naturally these questions arise. And then particularly these are more important questions because these organisms, several of these organisms, you know, I mean, I, I would like to stress here that, uh, you know, a very small fraction of the microorganisms, in fact, uh, affect our lives deleteriously. There are about say 300 or so bacteria that can infect human beings and there are uh, much less. There are about 30, 40 of the viruses that we know uh, we encounter, uh, you know, uh, diseases uh, in, in our common lives. So beyond that, there are tens and uh, tens of thousands of viruses that we don't really worry much about because they don't affect us very deleteriously. So, but when a new creature or a new virus comes across our lives, we start asking these questions. Uh, why, when, and how? So these questions are very, very fundamental to our thoughts. And these are fundamental in resolving, in understanding what disease and their, their nature of existence and how they are going to impact us. So working on something fundamental has been always, again, central to uh, our lives and then the new uh, term the tran uh, that we talk about often, translational research, is actually coming out of the fund fundamental research only because what we know is what we are actually going to be able to use for our own, our own uh, betterment. So uh, without any fundamental research, there is no applied research. So fundamental research is what uh, we, we, we pretty much think about every day. Right. Did you have any any Eureka moment or something where you felt like, yeah, this is what you had to do. You had to go into fundamental research or was it like a gradual process for you? It was a gradual process. There was no Eureka moment. You know, when I was when I started my career, uh, I was certainly fascinated with microorganisms and infectious diseases in particular. Mm -hmm. uh, we did not have much uh, to study about viruses in particular because most of our most of our textbooks and syllabi would actually talk about uh, you know uh, mechanisms of life in, in in essentially in smaller organisms and higher organisms like us but then right. there 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 are occasional encounters on viruses but then apart from that there wasn't much about viruses but then around us there were things such as for example hiv was happening a big deal in 1990s when i was mm -hmm. growing up and naturally, the, the source of information is pretty much from the, the, the newspaper. So you hear about it, you read about it, and then right. a lot of curiosity builds up in our minds, just like in, in any of our common man uh, across the world, what is happening now, right? Thinking right. of coronavirus and the, the, all the thoughts, uh, you know, more than, I would say that more than 75% of our times we have been thinking or discussing about coronavirus these days. Right. So people naturally have questions like this, and then I wasn't very different from that. So there wasn't there wasn't a particular eureka moment. I don't think so, but this was a natural process. And then you, uh, most of the people in, in India at that time, I mean, in, in research institutions, worked on fundamental problems. So that was right. a natural thing to do. Right. That that makes that makes a lot of sense. And uh, so. Your work now in CCMB is primarily dealing with the RNA viral systems, HCV, dengue, and uh, the Japanese encephalitis, right? So can you tell us a bit more about uh, your research group in CCMB and 
what are the major areas of uh, you know focus for you yeah so i had been uh, uh, working on rna viruses for about for 30 years now so uh, my laboratory when i set up my laboratory in uh, ccmb after coming from uh, post doctoral research stint in the us uh, i wanted to work on uh, this virus called hepatitis c virus which is an rna virus and right. uh, and uh, this is a this is a you know dangerous virus because it spreads from person to person through body fluids and then it hides in our body for a long period of time we don't even get to know about that this we we, we are harboring a virus and there could be some initial symptoms such as jaundice or something and then then uh, you know the body uh, overcomes with that but the virus remains with us and the virus remains in in our liver cells liver tissue so uh, But what happens is that the virus actually uh, turns on uh, or messes up with the with the cell division cycle, and ultimately, after 10-15 years down the line, you come down with problems such as, say, liver cirrhosis or liver cancer, hepatocellular carcinoma. And right. by the time it's too late, and there is no way of going back, and the only uh, you know uh, intervention was, of course, uh, uh, you know, liver transplantation. But that was also not often a permanent solution, right? right? So fortunately, in the last five years or so, there have been beautiful drugs that are in the market, which can cure over 95 percent of the cases, and that has substantially reduced uh, the cases of hepatitis C virus spread. But then, even now, a lot of people still live with complications, uh, you know, originated from the infection. Now, that was a fascinating virus. It's a very small RNA virus, okay? And now, similar to that, we have been encountered with. other rna viruses such as dengue and japanese encephalitis one interesting uh, one interesting uh, fact is that most of the emerging and re-emerging viral infections in humans uh, have been caused by rna viruses right Great. so uh, you would see uh, very often dengue is a very common term before corona this used to be the, probably the most popular virus uh, across india because every uh, monsoon season uh, or every monsoon would actually bring in a lot of these mosquitoes problems and then you start hearing about dengue cases uh, yeah. and then we had a kind of an epidemic uh, of uh, uh, chikungunya in sometime in 2006 uh, especially right, right. the neighboring states were you know more of tropical uh, infection so this this emerging and re-emerging viruses are predominantly rna viruses right so uh, working on rna viruses is quite rewarding use was quite rewarding at that point of time and, and i was very fascinated how such a small a virus with a small genetic material can actually bring down a big host like us you know which are much much complex and multiple complex layers of our gene regulation and uh, evolution how is a virus such a simple virus with about 10 proteins uh, how is it able to bring us down i mean how is it able to kill us how is it changing our lives uh, so dramatically so we have been studying uh, the host response to these rna viral uh, infections how our cells identify that there is uh, a foreign thing in our body like rna or rna genome how do our cells respond to that and how the virus is able to subvert other response of the cells these have been uh, some of those areas that we have been uh, studying very 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 uh, you know intensely over the last 10 years or something and then came last year the coronavirus which again happened to be uh, an rna virus 
So uh, as of now, most of my research in my laboratory has been focused on uh, understanding how the cells respond to uh, coronavirus, which is an RNA virus, which is slightly more complex uh, in terms of gene expression in comparison with simpler RNA viruses uh, like uh, hepatitis C virus or dengue virus. Right. Mm -hmm. So there is a lot more to yeah. in that. So we have been pretty much focused on focused on uh, coronavirus as of now. But then we still have questions that are pertaining to dengue and uh, other RNA viruses. Yeah. So uh, that that's interesting because uh, you know an RNA viral system. Basically, what we're saying is that the genetic material is an RNA, not not a DNA, right? And yeah. so the way you know the the genetic material integrates with with the host system uh, and you know how the downstream mechanisms work all those would be different and so what i want to understand is uh, from setting up your laboratory till now what are all the things that have that has evolved in a laboratory which has you know helped you to finally come here come down to you know the covid uh, research and really do uh, quality research related to covid i'm sure that over the years we built up a lot of uh, knowledge base as well as say technology in your laboratory, right? Right. That's that's again a very interesting question. See, for a researcher, I mean, for I mean, for not just for a researcher, for everybody, the experience of uh, being in different situations is uh, what is essentially making up a person, right? A personality yeah. around experience. So, so clearly, for a scientist, for a researcher, that is no different at all. So. Uh, I, b before uh, I started working on RNA viruses, I spent uh, five, six years on a DNA virus also. So I, I, I uh, realized that the thought process of a virologist, a DNA virologist, is quite different from an RNA virologist. Right. That's you deal with uh, you know the, the the gene regulation of the RNA the virus and the uh, host response in, from completely different perspectives. Even though there are uh, quite a lot of commonalities between the DNA and the RNA. Mm -hmm. Right. So, uh, but the general mechanism of our evolution, uh, the response, how we respond to an infection, is quite, quite well conserved. So that means essentially what it means that, uh, you know, how our cells identify that there is a foreign uh, genetic material in our cell. So there are common mechanisms to detect that. There are common mechanisms to detect if it's an RNA. Uh, genetic material. So for a lot of these viruses, for example, dengue and uh, hepatitis C virus and uh, coronavirus, how the cells respond, we can predict it. Uh, obviously, there are going to be uh, distinctions uh, between the viruses in each case. And that is also born out of the particular host cell that is susceptible to infection. For example, uh, a liver cell, uh, it's very different from uh, 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 bronchial epithelial cells where the coronavirus is actually infecting, right? Right. Liver cells, liver cells all, all the cells in our body have the same genetic makeup, but the cells are quite distinct from each other. That's that's all determined by the type of gene expression that is happening in each of the cell. Mm -hmm. So that essentially means that there are commonalities in, in terms of the response to a particular uh, group of virus, for example, RNA viruses. But there are also going to be uh, distinct features in each cell. So those are really very important to understand. And then, when we spend quite a bit of time working on various types of viruses, you build up a, a you know kind of a base, a good uh, knowledge base, 
that can be quite flexible and adaptable to other systems. Right. So having experience, of course, a lot of techniques that we use are going to be similar as well. So having spent a lot of time uh, uh, learning these uh, various RNA viral systems uh, certainly helped us in quickly uh, uh, adapting to the coronavirus requirements and then set up uh, a, a research program on that uh, on that uh, coronavirus plan. Yeah. So, so that that certainly helps. That knowledge base certainly helps. You know, this has actually uh, been a very important question that everyone's been asking, right? Like, how did we come up with the vaccine so quickly? You know, in general terms, we we require like five to ten years. But then, how how has the world or, or how have the, how has the scientific community been able to, you know, come up with the vaccine so quickly? And I think a very important part uh, to understand here is that even though it looks like the vi the vaccines or even the virus viral strain isolation everything happened in like a few months or in a year's time, it's actually I would say 20 30 years of research that has gone in where now we are able to do it so quickly, right? Absolutely. It's probably not even 20 years. It's much before that because, you know, a lot of uh, scientific, uh, you know, areas evolve in parallel. Right. So if you look yeah. at it, if, if you look at it, for example, vaccine, there are different types of vaccines there are in the market. There are vaccines uh, such as, say, for example, Covaxin, which is uh, uh, which is uh, 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 inactivated SARS-CoV-2. Right. So these yeah. coronaviruses are cultured in cells and in, in large fermenters and bioreactors and then they are inactivated. They are no more infectious, but they have the genetic material. So they have the genetic material. They also have the proteins around them. So these proteins are essentially essentially the uh, antigens that uh, that help build antibody in our system when 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 that is introduced into our blood. Right. Mm -hmm. So now when you look at it, so there are multiple components to it now. So we need to learn how to grow virus. We need to learn how to inactivate it. We need to learn how to scale it up at industrial scale. We need to uh, study them in other, uh, for example, in, in, in initially in the in, 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 in small systems such as mice or rabbits or, um, you know, uh, hamsters and possibly in higher uh, order animals and then do the studies in, in humans. So that essentially combines a lot of knowledge from multiple fields, right? Now take another example uh, of Covishield. Covishield is uh, quite different from Covaxin in that it is, it expresses, uh, a, a, you know, SARS coronavirus viral protein spike, but it is expressing from uh, a, a, a backbone of an adenovirus, right? Now these adenoviruses are completely different from uh, coronavirus, but people have been working on adenovirus as a good vector for several other systems. So uh, when when Oxford University when uh, uh, you know they uh, when coronavirus hit as and the, the the system was quite robust at Oxford University, and then they quickly turned it around and started working with the coronavirus, and it turned out to be successful. So. The system was quite robust already, and that is because they had been spending, and not only them, you know, it's not just them, it's several people working around the world, uh, contributing through their research articles and publications, the knowledge that is being created, they're all being culminating at a, at a, they're culminating at a particular place, and that's why the system was quite robust there. They were ready to go. They were poised, right? 
Now, uh, the, the yet another vaccine, the mRNA vaccine that we have, which is very remarkable and revolutionary uh, to the entire biomedical research. That's because uh, that was actually being used in other contexts, in the context of other 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 uh, diseases, not for again for coronavirus. But again, uh, you know, for example, how an mRNA can be used as a vaccine. This thought process came in 1970s, and some certain experiments were done by a groups, a set of groups. But then they encountered a lot of other difficulties because difficulties such as the mRNA being introduced into the cell was itself was causing a problem in the cell. The cells were dying. So when the cells were dying and then uh, a large number of other groups started understanding why the cells are dying because when a foreign RNA is introduced into a, into a cell, cell also has a lot of RNA. So what is it actually different in the, in the mRNA that is coming from outside? Now, if right. we can actually figure out why, what is so fundamentally different in the mRNA coming from outside, we can change them. We can make changes in such a way that the cells are not finding it as poor and then cells are accepting them. You know, in that sense, right. the mRNA would be able to complete its function, which is essentially to make a protein. So a lot of studies actually went in, and especially in the last 10, 15 years, we have, uh, you know, accumulated so much knowledge in the... <clears throat> in terms of how mRNA can be introduced without uh, invoking a, a harsh response from the cell. That allowed us in, in, in designing these vaccines. You know, there are certain uh, modifications that are happening, chemical modifications happening in these mRNAs, uh, which are used as vaccine, which allow this particular mRNA to escape uh, the surveillance from our cell. Again, this surveillance that I'm talking about is an immune surveillance. The same mechanism uh, of our body that recognizes the foreign RNA which is coming from the virus is essentially the one that is responsible for uh, mounting a response against this mRNA that we are introducing also, even though it is not in a virus, right? Okay. So there are some common mechanisms that have evolved in our body which recognizes the foreign molecule, foreign RNA. Now, when we change the nature of the foreign RNA, and then uh, try to mimic a, a native RNA, that's when the cells are more accepting uh, these mRNA. So that was again a quite remarkable thing. So a lot of science, a lot of knowledge went into it, right? So when yeah. we say that it, it came very quickly and successfully, that essentially suggests that, uh, you know, a, a hundreds and hundreds, thousands of researchers have contributed to it, in, in, even though not in a direct way. So, that yeah. knowledge base is very, very important. And that's what, now we go back to the question that you were asking, fundamental science. This is a perfect example. So many scientists worked on uh, these questions on why an mRNA is invoking a response from a cell, right? Mm -hmm. So that required, you know, studies from various systems and various contexts and various research groups, various countries. Several governments have pumped in money for them for those research, even though that looked not really uh, directly having any application, right? Now you look at how that uh, how that fundamental research has actually contributed back to humanity, how that has actually helped in uh, generating this vaccine. This is where fundamental science contributes. You can't actually look at the the return of the investment in five years or ten years, but there is going to be an overall impact and without fundamental science, this is not going to go anywhere. Absolutely. It's really, it's really fascinating, I must say. 
so let, let let us just continue with you know the the discussion on uh, covid and uh, how how research is being on that so uh, you have been on the forefront uh, i would say as far as early stage work is concerned related to you know the diagnostics as far as your uh, culturing on these uh, the the sars cov2 is concerned so uh, can you tell us a bit about what all the work uh, you know what all work was done at the early stage okay so um what we recognize and usually um, the research institutions across the world we are focused on the problems that we are fascinated with usually right mm-hmm. and uh, we that that is also a problem because you know the society really don't see us yeah right society doesn't see us and then uh, we don't have a face in most cases we are spending most of our time in the laboratory mm-hmm. uh, looking at our results and analyzing and setting up experiments right so uh, when uh, this covid started and then initial thought was that okay this is going to be contained in china it's not a big deal nobody really took it very very seriously but then when it hit us and when in march 2020 when it, when who announced that this is a pandemic now then everybody just woke up right then then agencies uh, realized that the cdr the issue is much larger and and then uh, you know there is a potential of thousands of thousands of people getting infected and then our existing infrastructure won't be able to deal with it right so we had to scale up and then ccmb was very quick and uh, you know uh, that really really helped in identifying the the problem and also in identifying what we can offer right so uh, we offered to help the state uh, in doing the testing and training people for the testing because these are rt pcr is quite sensitive and not many people uh, outside laboratories like ours do that every day so in a normal laboratory where you diagnostic laboratory when you when you send sample blood sample for uh, glucose testing or lipid profiling they don't really deal with these sensitive uh, instruments and also sensitive sensitive techniques so we had to train a lot of people right. so uh, my laboratory my students set up this uh, initial uh, testing whether with the with the patient sample and then uh, we were quickly successful and then based on those results uh, icmr approved us for as 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 a testing laboratory and that actually was a quite remarkable thing in 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 the scenario of uh, uh, research institutions in diagnostics because ccmb turned out to be the first institution to do such testing uh, anywhere in india so that Uh, gave immense confidence to several other research institutions across the country and they started uh, also setting up diagnostic laboratory and sharing their techniques training other training people uh, uh, laboratory technicians and that helped in expanding the network of diagnostics right so that was right. a remarkable thing now um, as a virologist i was also oh, quite fascinated i mean i would say that maybe a little uh, selfish because i also wanted to have an access to the virus culture right that's where any virologist could actually make a difference right now uh, access to the patient samples certainly helped us in uh, you know in trying out whether we can culture the the, the 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 coronavirus in the laboratory and ccmb has a biosafety level 3 laboratory and um, we were uh, by that time a couple of reports had actually come from china us and i believe australia also for culturing covid2 and there was some 
knowledge about it in other uh, SARS, original SARS, which happened in 2002 and 2003. So there was already some knowledge base existing and then we quickly, we had the resources and we quickly uh, uh, put them into test and then, then uh, you know, were able to quickly set up the culture, uh, virus culture uh, in the laboratory. So okay. that was a remarkable thing because then once you have the virus in hand, uh, you can uh, do several, several things, uh, starting from setting up a drug screening platform, using the virus to test if there are uh, the antiviral devices, um, you know, some, several of them for disinfection and various industrial purposes, and the air purifiers. So those experiments could be done very, very efficiently and quickly in our facility. In addition to that, these viruses were also quite useful for other activities such as vaccine development, right? We had a we have a project with Bharat Biotech in order to test uh, the efficacy of vaccine in small animals. And we also uh, collaborated with a company called Wins Bioproducts. Here, this particular project is quite fascinating. Um, here, you must have heard about something called plasma therapy, right? and plasma therapy. In, in, in that therapy, what is essentially used is the neutralizing antibody that could be present in a recovered person. Correct. Right? Now, we realize that uh, this plasma therapy is very inconsistent because there are several things that are still unknown. Some people develop good amount of neutralizing antibody while several other recovered people don't have much. So, it's, it's not something that we can rely on. So, uh, here we uh, collaborated with this company called Wins, where they have they have been working on similar projects uh, in other cases. Right? What we do is that we inactivate the virus and inject this inactivated virus into into horses, into equines, such as horses. And these horses develop antibody, and we purify this antibody from their from their plasma, and we process them. We remove uh, the constant region of the antibody, which is essentially allow us to introduce them into humans without causing much immune response in the humans against that antibody. Mm -hmm. So such antibodies have been used in, for example, in in in, in, in uh, rabies virus, and in other cases such as snake against snake venom, right? The antidote is essentially pretty much these kind of antibodies. Mm -hmm. So we were able to. Uh, I mean, I would say that I'm quite happy to say that uh, we were able to raise these antibodies uh, and they have been shown to be very good in neutralizing the uh, SARS-CoV-2 virus and these are undergoing the clinical trials currently and we are quite hopeful and optimistic that this could actually become a, a great source of uh, treatment, which is again uh, not a vaccine but a treatment in persons who are undergoing severe uh, COVID. So for all those things, we needed virus in culture and the resources, um, the willingness, the risk taking willingness and also the expertise uh, came together in order to, to, to initiate these activities and over a period of over a year, last one year or something, the life had been so uh, remarkable and, and totally transformed. Yeah, it is. It is something like you know you dream of as a researcher. Right? You can actually do contribute to the society in your lifetime. So, absolutely. I mean, it gives me immense pleasure of giving back to the society because this is 
as a virologist, these things are dreams, you know. Um, yeah. Being in the middle of all the entire activity in the eye of the storm, and then you know, so that had been that had been very very rewarding for for me and my research group. I'm very thankful to all the research, uh, the entire research team in my laboratory, and also several other teams, and also CCMB director for putting together. Uh, I mean, coordinating all different activities, multiple fingers and multiple arms. Absolutely. Well, in the, middle of all those lockdowns last year, we, we functioned, we didn't close a single day. We were working 24-7, 365. So that was Great. a remarkable Absolutely. And uh, it's, it's, it's a humongous effort, you know, to coordinate these things and uh, come up with the right, right kind of technology, right kind of answers to the, to the questions that we are asking. So, uh, so now, uh, you know, continuing with this discussion, something that, uh, you know, our country is facing right now is it's affecting us, right? Um, so can you tell us a bit about how these new, new strains work and uh, why, why is it that some strains are becoming uh, more infectious in nature? Okay, so this is again a natural evolution and particularly so for RNA viruses, right? So one thing that distinguishes RNA viruses, especially the RNA viruses that are emerging and re-emerging, they have a very loose, loosely controlled replication process. When I say replication, I mean making more and more of the genetic material. Correct. Right. So these are achieved by enzymes that are uh, encoded by the virus itself. And these enzymes, uh, don't have much uh, proofreading mechanism. So that allows the virus to keep on changing, you know, the, the nucleotide sequence here and there randomly. Mm -hmm. But scientists uh, have figured an, 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 an approximate around one in every uh, uh, 100,000 bases okay. undergo a mutation. Right, that looks very small because the viral genome size is much smaller than that. But then, it, like I said, it is a random event. And this keeps happening constantly for RNA viruses, right? Mm -hmm. And then in, a, in an infected person, in a, in a single cell of an infected person, there will be over a million copies of the viral genome, right? Right. And you can imagine the number of uh, such in a number, number of these uh, genomes with distinct sequences which have mutations different from each other. Correct. So over a period of time in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in each person, these uh, different, I mean, these viruses with distinct sequences that we scientists call quasi-species, uh, they build up and anything that is fitter than the other, they will overtake the others. This is a simple uh, evolutionary theory. Mm. And when they multiply more and more, you are essentially giving them opportunity to evolve more and more. And when I say evolve, I'm talking from the perspective of the virus, right? A virus right. wants to evolve. If a virus is evolving, what does it want? It wants to make more of it, of course. And the virus being virus, it always needs a host. Outside the host, it is nothing, right? Right. It's a piece of uh, a molecule. So it needs to be present in the host and it also needs host. So for that, that sense, it wants, it wants the host to survive as well. 
right? Right. So, so something like, for example, a virus like Ebola, it kills a host very quickly. So it is not a it is not a way evolved virus because from there on it is unable to find a new host during that short window period. Okay. So, but this SARS-CoV-2 is uh, much more smarter because it is able to spread in more subtle ways, right? Mm -hmm. From a person to person, so it maintains its population within human population. Right. Right. So, so when we when we are saying uh, you know uh, that the virus, the new strain is more infectious, that means it is able to make more of its own copies inside the cell, inside the host cell. Yeah. No, uh, so there are multiple angles to it. Okay. When more when when virus becomes more infectious, it means that it is able to infect the new host in a more efficient way. Okay. Right. The new efficient way could be much faster. Right. A faster right. entry, more efficient entry, and able to make more of it, and then leave that, and then go to the next host. Okay. Right. So that is, it need not necessarily mean that it is more lethal or fatal. In fact, the more lethal it is to the host, the less infectious it will become, or the less right. smart it will become. Right. So because it won't be able to find a new host yeah. to. It is I'm not referring yeah. to the pathogenicity in the in the in the host. Yeah. Yeah. So yes, uh, I think mutants uh, keep evolving and they have higher uh, ability to uh, outnumber the earlier ones and that keeps happening and this is going to be right. an ongoing process and then uh, most virologists believe that this will settle down with time and then will be much less uh, fatal and causing much less trouble uh, over a period of time. Now how long that's going to take that is something that we have to wait and watch. For example, yeah. Spanish flu went on rage for over two, three years, but we are much better placed than because we have vaccines and um, so that will try to uh, reduce the impact and then might be able to control the pandemic much better. Yeah, I mean, there's this, uh, there's a rumor that goes around which says, you know, in a few years time, this might just end up like a normal flu and we won't even care about it. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. That makes sense, is it? That makes sense, absolutely. Okay, okay. Yeah, I think it's it's, it's really fascinating that you know uh, the the nature is evolving. I would say viruses are evolving, but we as humans have also evolved in a way where we are able to you know come up with newer and newer ways in which we can deal with these changes. Right. So overall, if if I really look back at how we have evolved, this also seems to be in a way process of evolution for for us humans as well in a way don't you think absolutely yeah so that's been the case always right i mean when uh, other more deadly viruses just smallpox viruses were uh, ravaging the entire globe people mm -hmm. who survived turned out to remain resilient for most of their lives and you know uh, that that used to be the case and uh, you know for example other thing another virus common virus called chicken pox virus which is not fatal but then you get lifelong immunity against that. So that essentially means we are also, hosts are also evolving. We are also, our, our systems are also, you know, learning from the, the encounter with the virus and then get ready to face the next time similar viruses. That's right. That's right. And uh, another thing which, which uh, you know, across the world, what we are seeing is mobilizing uh, research and 
you know researchers towards uh, such such a situation right so even in india we've seen that you know a lot of laboratories are now working towards coming up with newer technologies right and uh, you've had an experience of working at the university of kansas medical center uh, which is in the us and uh, now you've been part of ccmb for a few years as well right so if you really try and compare how research is research is being done you know in these two countries can you give us an idea as to what's your experience been here and what all things what are the difficulties that you face as far as india and research and development is concerned okay um us is uh, a completely altogether different ball game right um their scale is much much bigger right right scale of research is much bigger there uh, and their facility their their uh, resources they have, they are much much larger right right our, our research ecosystem is quite different from that of the us mm-hmm. uh, one direct example that i can talk about is for example our major workforce is our graduate students right or uh, undergoing phd so these students these students essentially are undergoing training right during their phd they are being trained how to do good science right how, how to think how to plan experiments how to execute how to uh, report right how to how to present your results in conferences so right. this is an ongoing thing and then Uh, as, as a researcher, as a, as a principal investigators of the lab, we spend a lot of time training students. And of course, you know, some of them students are smarter; they learn much earlier, and then they start picking. But it also requires investment of two to three years. Right. Period. Now, uh, the U.S. has a great advantage because pretty much every researcher, every graduate student after their PhD, they want to go to the U.S. and experience that. Mm-hmm. that is that is a plain fact right something yeah. that to us brain drain now these are people who are already trained well they can now start you know setting up their own projects they can uh, they can straight away uh, start running from day one in the laboratory right and so that's why they are they are a lot more more productive than the graduate students who are over here right and right. they can think they can integrate uh, much newer uh, technologies much faster so overall ecosystem is uh, a lot more productive in the us we have improved over a period of time as well but then there is a long way to go for us mm-hmm. right so the challenges are very very different for us and for them and of course us is uh, scientifically far more advanced getting students and trained people is a lot more easier right and there is also a lot more social acceptance and respect for researchers in the us uh, in india the research is mostly done in research institutions that's been the way that our system has been set up historically right and these are uh, not very huge research institutions and uh, so for any particular field uh, 
the the kind of uh, expertise that is available is not that big but then we have expertise in more or less all, all the fields um for example certain certain departments in uh, some us universities there are some famous departments for virology and all they would have mm. easily 20 30 faculty who work on different viruses and different aspects of different viruses so they can all come together quickly and uh, provide a solution very very easily right and yeah. uh, collaborations are a lot more robust in the us we are also improving but then we still have to go a long way these collaborations are very important because people with different expertise have to come together to offer a particular solution absolutely right. so that's very very important and i think they 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 also have a very uh, robust uh, industrial and academic collaboration and mm-hmm. often often researchers are encouraged to work with industry or set up their own um you know there's something that we call startups right yeah where you where your own finding you could spin off and you can you can start an industry and then um bring a particular knowledge into a product much faster right so right. they are quite quite robust uh, and we are still moving towards uh, such a system and if if a scientist sees a lot more reward in what they are doing right uh, whether it can reward can be multiple thing it can be recognition it can be uh, through awards it can also be for some people it can also also be be able to bring the product into the market it can also be money why not mm-hmm. right so for i mean yeah. like like different individuals different scientists have different different interests so we are yet to move towards something of that you know um so yes. that's that is quite different and we also had to increase uh, our funding our grants and uh, substantially scale it up even though we have been making progress in that so there are there are these are completely different different systems and we had to learn from that and then start and improvise ours yeah absolutely it so makes makes a lot of sense uh, going process though yeah yeah we okay have so problems yeah. as a country distinct problems so we had to wade through those and then uh, significantly do better but i i would say that the entire scientific community came together during covid and we we were still uh, we did really pretty good you know in terms of our response absolutely i mean it's 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 actually a good example of how you know if if universities and industries they come together what what are the things that we can achieve in in a short period of time so uh yeah so uh, this is something which i which i generally ask uh, you know all the researchers that i meet and that i talk to so i am going to ask you the same thing what does a day in the life of a researcher look like uh, uh, how do you cope with the challenges and failures you know sometimes self doubts and eventually the success okay yo so i think the most important difference of a researcher's life from the other people is that it's a 24/7 365 commitment mm-hmm. and i won't i won't call it a job because the moment you start calling it a job you probably look for some kind of you give a, give a definition to the timelines and things like that right right it's a commitment essentially 
so based on the requirement of the experiment and because this results and experiments and your progress keeps evolving so your attention uh, a lot of times physical uh, presence and intellectual presence is absolutely required but it's very exciting uh, because you are actually facing problems which are new every day right and this essentially teaches you uh, how to face failures how to face problems uh, days could be very dull if there is no problem coming to you you can be i mean we often get depressed yeah. if there's a new problem coming in our way right it, and and the failures are failures are very very frequent i would say over 95% of the experiments would end up as uh, some or the other way failure mm -hmm. there are very few days that we get totally on, on uh, over the moon right yeah yeah so but then you get used to it and then you keep looking forward to you know more problems and failures and that has got a huge impact on the way that you live as well because uh you know you the same thing happens in life also you are pretty well equipped to deal with the problems in life so uh i think that actually helps in 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 wading through the failures in life as well so for a researcher um like i said it's only the beginning that you worry about the failures and all then it becomes a part of it right that's 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 a very important message and uh, what would you like to say to all the you know new upcoming researchers in our country who are looking out to see what they can do uh, as far as research is concerned okay the first thing that i would say is that follow follow your passion and you identify if you have a passion in it or not if you are there only for for example money or fame mm -hmm. or success please that's not going to work you need to have a passion you need to follow up you will have some questions why when where how keep following them if you test it whether you have the you have the uh, patience and tenacity in to to, to be there in the uh, long haul right that's very important to identify so check your check with yourself if you have that now science research is full of excitement and uh, for example in the field of virology we see that new viruses keep emerging and they keep throwing new problems new challenges so there is no end to it there's no nobody is going to identify and resolve the complete problems any day right it's an ongoing one finding leads you to another question and then you keep living uh, perpetually in a series of problems or series of questions there's no end to it the nature is so fascinating so we haven't discovered or identified even uh, you know 1 percentage of the knowledge that is possibly existing around us a very very small fraction is what we have covered there's so much to be found out and so much to be tested so science is uh, my research is very exciting uh, in fact there is a researcher in every one of us we all keep experimenting something or the other right maybe with uh, we experiment with certain plants in our garden we experiment with certain bugs in our garden we experiment with certain spices in our kitchen we keep doing that so there is a researcher in every of us the question is whether you have it in there for the long run so if you have it then 
this is very very exciting so find out about yourself and then don't be afraid of failure you you will you will define your own success that's my my uh, my message to the budding institutes yes that that is a strong message uh, and i think uh, uh, i would say it's it's a very rewarding field if you are there for the long haul uh, definitely um so dr krishnan you know before we end uh, would you also like to send a message from your laboratory to the people of our country who are dealing with uh, you know the second wave of the pandemic okay that's a, that's an interesting and a lot of these you must have heard about anyway follow covid yeah. protocol yeah right wear mask and keep distance don't be afraid to tell uh, a person around you to stay away from you right don't be afraid to ask them to wear a mask wear the protocol follow the protocol because it's your life there's no point in shying away from that and then now currently by time our healthcare system is so stretched so try and by time avoid crowded places and follow the protocol and whenever the vaccine becomes available do it at the earliest don't have any doubt about vaccine and get it at the earliest these are the three messages that i have uh that's that's really really great uh, dr krishnan i think uh, that's a strong message at which we can we can end our show and it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you and you know discover a lot of uh, new insights about uh, fundamental research related to viruses and how vaccines are being developed and i think uh, this is going to be very very informative to a lot of lot of people around uh, around our country so thanks a lot for spending time with us i know you must be really busy with uh, you know all the research work that you're doing so i really appreciate you taking out time to talk to us yeah it's my pleasure suraj and thanks a lot for providing this platform to reach out to uh, the common man and sign uh, research aspirants um if i can uh, inspire even one person that's a big deal absolutely yeah. thanks a lot uh, dr krishnan have a good day thank you you too Yeah bye bye